Just Be Better, Your Physio Begs You, the show about all the things your physio wishes you knew and how to be better at understanding your health. As always, this information is for educational purposes only. Please visit your physio or health professional if any of the content seems relevant to you. In today's episode, I'm talking about pain signs, which is the kind of beige title to a really colourful and interesting area of physio and neurology. As the title suggests, it is the science of pain, which examines how local inputs can be translated into what we know as pain, which, as we'll find out, is a pretty interesting process. Now, as is on brand for me, this episode is a general overlook into pain science, and in it I'll be talking about a few different types of pain and one of the ways that chronic pain can come about. God knows that this is a twisty, wiggy, and very weird area, and I've had to revise a lot of my university notes for it, so some content will be saved for another time. Now, something that might be controversial to a lot of people is that pain is actually a good and normal thing to experience most times. It has a lot of benefits, specifically with avoiding harm and dangerous situations where we're wanting to avoid damage to our body. But within this talk, the main concept that I want people to sort of understand is that the output does not equal input. And what I mean by that is that pain is actually an output from the brain. It's not an input as such. The way that people often think pain happens is that I hit my arm and that sends a pain signal to the brain. Not sure what people think it does in the brain, but, you know, the pain signal is there. Oh my gosh. But that's not really the case. Pain is actually generated by the brain as it brings in a lot of different information. So if we think that pain is an input, and if we assume that the damage level correlates to the amount of pain we have, that kind of brings into into question a couple of things, like when shark attack victims describe that they felt a bump when they lost a limb, or combat survivors might describe getting hit by a bullet as feeling like a sting or an insect bite. We'd imagine there's a lot of tissue damage in those cases, but the pain doesn't match. What we know happens in the pain pathway is there is a danger or a damage signal in an area that gets sent to the brain and it kind of swishes around the different departments in the brain, which then decides whether we want to feel pain, if that's useful or not. And then it sends it out, we experience pain and we can try and avoid it if that's obviously what we have been feeling. With all of these things, The issue for pain is not in the acute sense for most cases, it's when the brain or the local tissues become really sensitive and hypervigilant. So what would normally be a mild, moderate input becomes a really big deal and the normal input becomes amplified to be a really big problem. When this happens, the treatment you might get from a physio is less about the hands-on and the massaging and more about psychology and behavioural management. As we've talked about in previous episodes, it's a bit like massaging tone. It feels nice if you've got tight calves from high tone, but the massage doesn't actually fix the issue. Within a sensitised pain system and within chronic pain, the hands-on feels nice and certainly has benefits, but it's not addressing the root cause. In these cases, hands-on becomes part of the treatment instead of the treatment. There's a couple of different ways that we can look at health problems and we can try and classify them. And the medical world traditionally sticks with what we call a biomedical sense, 
With that, there is a disease that has a process, and if we fix the process, we can often cure the disease. Because it's very biologically focused, there's a lot of emphasis on anatomy and physiology. You're always searching for a cause and something to diagnose. And the treatments tend to be pretty passive. You know, it's going to be surgery, it's going to be medication, and physical activity is often deemed as harmful because there's an emphasis on rest and allowing tissues to heal unencumbered by physical activity. One of the newer schools of thinking that physiotherapy tends to fall under is the biopsychosocial. And as we can imagine, the bio refers to biology, so the anatomy physiology. Psycho refers to mental state and the psychology. And social is the social context, so whether that is racial background, socioeconomic status, where you might be living and access to healthcare, etc. Within biopsychosocial, there's a lot more emphasis on preventative behaviours and the brain-body connection. The treatment tends to be a lot more active and collaborative, and it's less so directed purely by the healthcare provider, and a lot of it comes back on you, the patient, and trying to drive your own management of whatever the disease or injury might be. So before we can start talking about the psychology and the social context behind chronic pain, we do need to look into the biology of it. As I said before, pain is not an input, it's an output, and it comes from the brain before it is the experience that we know as pain. But to get there, we do need to send signals to the brain. The main signal that we send broadly could be categorized as nociception, which is a danger signal that is constantly getting sent to the brain. You can have nociception with pain or nociception without pain. It really depends on the context and whether the brain determines it is dangerous enough to require pain. With nociception, there are three main categories. There is mechanical, inflammatory, and ischemic. So mechanical makes a lot of sense, as it sounds like there's action A, a slap, and sensation B is the danger that gets sent to the brain. So inflammation is typically from a chemical process. Often following a mechanical injury, a lot of different components and chemicals get sent to the area to assist in healing. Inflamed areas are obviously red, hot, and swollen, and we might describe that as having the inflammatory soup, which is the chemicals and immune cells that do help with the healing process. A slightly fun part of the inflammatory pain is the swelling that you get from inflammation can then provide a little bit more compression against nerve and other tissues in the area, which can exacerbate mechanical pain. So for the first 72 hours where inflammation is at its peak, it can be a little more painful just as that is happening. Now, with the nervous system, we have the central nervous system, which is the brain and spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system is basically everything else from that. Now, a little subcategory in inflammatory pain is what we call neurogenic pain, which is kind of pain in the peripheral nervous system. And the nerves that monitor that area assess the situation and decide that more healing is required in this area. And to do that, they release something called substance P, which basically acts as a signal to send more of that inflammatory soup come in. As I said, it's a good thing because that inflammation helps with healing process because there's the cleanup enzymes and the immune cells. But of course, the downside is that those immune cells and enzymes can actually make things a little bit more sensitive and painful in that short-term acute setting. An interesting fact 
actually, is uh, I saw there was a new study come out suggesting that anti-inflammatory medications can confuse this system, and there is actually some impact of taking anti-inflammatories with chronic pain. It was really interesting, um, and I think there's more studies that are being done in this area, but I remember in uni it was something we talked about, do we want inflammation to happen, do we want to prevent it? And it's really interesting to see how that's panning out on a research level. Anyway, moving on, I just thought that was kind of cool. So with, uh, with inflammation and with that neurogenic pain, again, it's usually quite fine in the acute sense. Inflammation usually lasts about 72 hours, but the problem is if those monitoring areas get injured and can send some wacky signals. In terms of treating inflammation, it's going to be stiff. You might be a little achy with some sharp pain, which relates to that underlying mechanical pain. Usually it responds really well to rice, which is rest, ice, compression, and elevation. Anti-inflammatories obviously can be helpful at reducing the pain, but of course the jury's now going out as to whether that's actually a good thing. And we actually do promote a little bit of movement in this inflammation stage, just to help keep things moving and prevent too much stiffness from happening. The final type of nociceptive pain I'll be talking about is ischemic pain. Now, ischemic anything is usually when there's a lack of blood and oxygen. So ischemic pain is when you've been in certain positions that drive fluid out of an area. So less blood flow gets to whatever part it might be. And there's a buildup of waste products such as lactic acid, which results in a burning pain. We can imagine this usually as being pain from inactivity. So if you are sitting for a long time in the car, your bum's going to be a bit sore. If you're sitting at the desk with crappy posture, your back and your neck is going to be a little sore. It's usually from that sustained positioning. It's worse at the end of the day. And because of the sort of pain it is, where it's honestly just a lack of movement and there not being the right circulation, there's often not a great response to pain medications. So ischemic pain is something that usually does really well with exercise, movement, and postural support devices can be pretty helpful as well and office ergonomics, things like that, just to put you in a more ideal position. So I've talked about the nociceptive pain, the mechanical, inflammatory, ischemic, and as I said, pain's good, normal, and in the acute setting, this is all fine. The issue, of course, is when things become chronic and subsequently more complex. With pain, the usual number that we would suggest is if pain extends beyond three months, which is usually when uh, the original injury might be healed by, we would then describe that pain as being chronic. So of course, before we get into more detail, we do need a quick biology lesson. So the brief tissue healing timeline. How long is a piece of string? It does depend on the type of tissue, the area of the body, and the severity of the injury. A mild rolled ankle is obviously going to have a different healing timeline versus a rolled ankle with a ruptured tendon, bone fragments come off needing surgical repair because it's a different sort of injury at that point. There are three overlapping phases in healing. We've got the inflammation, proliferation, and remodeling. So inflammation, we already talked about, that usually lasts around about three days at its peak and then tapers off. Proliferation is when all the cleanup and building cells flood the area to try and do the main healing, I guess. And then remodeling is a really long phase that can last anywhere from a few months to a few years. 
at trying to reorganize those new cells into the optimal positions. So most mild, moderate issues, they're going to be healed within a six to three month period, again, depending on the nature of the injury. The immune response and cleanup is usually done around about four weeks. And beyond that, it is mainly uh, the remodeling and the reorganizing. For example, with ligaments, they've got an elastic sort of structure. Uh, They're quite crumpled at rest, but they can stretch quite a lot. In the proliferation stage of healing, all the new collagen cells just get dumped in there as a bit of a web, which is nice but not useful. So the remodeling for that is going to be at reorganizing the collagen back into that scrunched up elastic shape so we can have that usual ligament function. It takes time. It's not an overnight thing. What's important to note is the remodeling phase shouldn't be painful. Everything has quote unquote healed at that stage and it's just reorganizing thing. It's like the admin of the of the healing stage. So it shouldn't be painful. We would expect that, as I said, pain should be reduced at the three month mark and beyond that, it's just the rehabilitation of whatever the injury might be. So we've talked about normal pain, how it looks and what's happening and that's great. The issue is when pain then extends beyond that three-month mark and when normal process become a little bit altered and different from how we want them to function. The area of chronic pain I'm going to talk about today is called central sensitization. And as with everything, it's a normally occurring process that sometimes can be co-opted and extends beyond the timeline that we normally want it to be around. What it does in the acute setting where we really like it is it inhibits a part of the spinal cord that decreases information. So that's a double negative. So basically, when central sensitization happens acutely, we get more amplification of danger signals broadly. And that's a good thing, because we've had an injury, we want to be more aware of what's happening there and broadly, so we can continue to avoid danger and we can allow the healing process to occur. So it is a good thing. The issue in the chronic setting is when there's too much inhibition, so too much amplification, it means the system becomes really adept at that. When we have a system that's really good at paying attention to everything and being hypervigilant, that then combines with a lot of different areas in the brain, and it can link in with emotional states, with memory, with beliefs about pain and general thoughts, and it can form neurotags. And neurotags are basically easy patterns of firing. So on a computer, Control-Alt-Delete opens Task Manager, whereas in the body, it might be that a certain sensation combined with a certain memory, it's a sensitized neurotag that is really good at shortcutting to pain. And the more that the brain practices these protective pain patterns, it gets really good at them. In the acute setting, it's cool, we like it, but of course the issue is when this does linger. What central sensitization can look like for someone is when you have ongoing pain after that normal healing time of approximately three months. The pain might then move, so instead of just being in the area where you had the injury, it floats around the limb or even around the body. You are hypersensitive and have a lot of pain locally and far away even just through the skin. It is easily flared up, but it also can be unpredictable. So you might describe that your pain has a mind of its own. It either has poor or just inconsistent response to hands-on treatments. So the usual massage 
and physio workup, it doesn't have the same benefit as it usually would. You might start having a reduced effect from pain medications, so you either need to take them more frequently or a higher dose. Or perhaps if you're on antidepressants, you might find that actually helps out at reducing the pain. I saw a really interesting post on Instagram that talks about some of the social and emotional context behind pain. So it might be people who have had a challenging childhood or they have a lot of coping strategies to be perfectionists, which means their nervous system is constantly tense and on alert to be perfect and do everything right. It might be these people have had a lot of health scares over the years and that's going to upregulate and really wire them to be quite tense in the emotional centers of the brain. When you've got that as a baseline, normal life stresses with an overprotective nervous system, it's all going to be amplified and upregulated. Throw in a few major life events or traumas, and you've just got a really protective and fearful brain. There's going to be a lot of learned neural pathways and those neurotags that make it easy to have pain or tense or anxiety sort of responses. And we obviously know that stress is linked in with pain because it just continues to release more of these chemicals that upregulate and amplify everything. It might be these people can fall into a downward spiral and it's hard to find happy activities. There's obviously a lot of links with chronic pain and anxiety and depression. I would argue that's a little bit of a chicken or an egg. Is it that people have anxiety and depression and then get chronic pain and it links together? Or is it that anxiety and depression is amplified when you have chronic pain, especially when you're existing within a very biomedical health system that's constantly looking for a source when it's not quite so simple as diagnosing an ankle sprain? As I talked about at the start of the podcast, treatment begins to move away from the hands-on physical and leads into a little more of the mental and emotional state. Broadly speaking, we're wanting to find strategies that calm down that central nervous system which might have some physical aspects, but also leading more towards the counselling. A lot of our aims are targeted towards yellow flags that are psychological factors that are normal, but can be unhelpful and linked with worse outcomes in chronic pain. And these are beliefs about pain, behaviours and ways you might be trying to avoid or catastrophize pain, trying to find diagnosis and treatment, other emotions and your family work context. It's obviously a very complex area. It's a lot of fun. For what physiotherapy might do, what can we do? Obviously, there's going to be a little bit of the hands-on treatment. That does have its benefit. It is soothing in its own right. It's comfortable and that can be enough sometimes to help downregulate. In the event of flares, it often does help with some pain management just as a, I don't want to say band-aid, but to get people through as a flare-up to manage that and to help while we are working on other factors. So one main area is going to be education. We know that anatomy-based education is really helpful for acute pain, but when we get to chronic pain, we need to add a little bit more because we obviously know that chronic pain is not just driven in anatomy, there's a lot of other factors. So that's when we might take a more neuroscience-based approach, which is this this sort of podcast where there's some anatomy talk, some biology discussions, but we're also taking into account other internal sciences. We're taking into context what the brain's doing and a lot of social factors as well. The second option, which of course is very physio, is exercise. But exercise can sound 
like a lot for people with chronic pain sometimes because the baseline's not there. So we might call that movement tolerance. And there's a lot of different ways we might work towards this, but broadly it falls under the category of graded exposure, where we're aiming to be able to do a task in a way that the pain neurotag doesn't fire as a whole, but we're still wanting parts of those paths to be activated and we're wanting to try and find alternative routes to get things done without going, oop, there's pain, oop, there it is. There's a lot of different ways you might do this. There's task progression, which is a very classic rehab strategy that physios might do, where we start about watching the movement, imagining doing the movement, and doing it in small, incomplete ways, building to doing the task in its entirety and adding complexity. So it's like instead of walking, you might start with moving the legs but not standing. You might start with doing a little bit of strength for the legs, but not walking. And then slowly, slowly, you're building towards standing, sit, stand, walk, run, etc. The other factor is context progression. So as we said, chronic pain can be amplified a lot by emotions and by stress. So it might be that we start doing certain tasks in a calm state versus a stress state. At different times of the day when the chemicals and the hormones in the body are different. It might be doing it in a really safe, comfortable space versus a more hectic space or an area that is feeling a little more dangerous, perhaps. By doing graded exposure, we're trying to avoid the boom or bust pathway. That's the sort of thing that has the no pain, no gain sort of mentality, which is obviously not helpful. What happens in boom or bust is when you're feeling good, You do heaps, that's when you do all your tasks, all your errands, you garden, you clean the house, and then you end up triggering a flare-up because you've done too much. Then you're inactive, you're in pain, and your body condition, your strength, your mobility goes down. Then when you feel good, you do a lot, but it doesn't take as much to trigger that flare-up, and that's how we can then go down in condition by doing less and less and less. We're also wanting to avoid using pain as a guide, because As anyone with chronic pain will tell you, they always have pain. Pain is always there. So if we're trying to avoid doing anything that causes pain, there's sometimes not a lot you can do because anything will cause pain. So the really challenging part with that is trying to find a baseline to work from where there's a little bit of discomfort, but it doesn't last. It doesn't trigger that huge flare up. And the idea for that is that you do a little bit And you're building a bit of strength, you're building a bit of tolerance towards that activity without knocking yourself out and wiping out for the next week. Depending on the context of uh, your chronic pain, again, whether it's injury related, which is probably more what I'm referring to in this talk as opposed to from degenerative conditions. But it might be that we're wanting to work towards doing things in more challenging locations, doing things in charged emotional states, having less dependency on medication or aids, if applicable. But of course, there are going to be some conditions where that's not always possible just due to the the nature of the condition and especially if it's got a degenerative nature with it. There's only so much we can be doing sometimes, but broadly speaking, we're still wanting to try and keep people from completely falling into complacency and, and not doing a lot because we know that just has bad outcomes on a lot of different factors. So we've talked about what physio does, basically hands on treatment when things are flaring education, and then helping devise movement strategies and building your tolerance towards that. Then it gets to a point where we can only do so much. We have got a little bit of education about 
behavioral patterns and theory to change and lots of details, but it's not where physio is best situated. It's not within our scope. So it might be that in really complex cases and if your chronic pain is very persistent and and very challenging, it might be that getting a physiotherapist to refer you or to help suggests that maybe a psychologist could be of benefit to you. We know that psychologist bread and butter is working with thoughts and behavioral patterns. And if you've got one that understands chronic pain, they are key, absolutely key to having a much better time with pain. Obviously, within chronic pain systems, your body is just too efficient at protecting you. Everything is so tense and ready and waiting. So working with a psychologist at trying to downregulate and trying to take a step back and reduce stress and a lot of different things like that can be helpful. Cognitive behavioral therapy at trying to address thought processes that might cause you to spiral and then work yourself up into a state of stress, anxiety, pain, that can be of benefit. Obviously, there is the, the usual things that can have benefit, you know, good sleep practice, uh, meditation, basic stress management, but there's only so much a physio can be advising with this. So it does get to a point where psychology and help from someone that's trained at addressing challenging thought processes and behavioral patterns, it is absolutely key. Now, if you are wanting to look into pain science a little bit more between now and my next episode, whenever that one comes out, what I can suggest is you look into books by David Butler and Laura Mosley. They are, I think they're South Australian, at least they're situated in the University of South Australia, but they've got a number of really good books about pain science and they have a lot of different levels of that, either targeted towards people with not a lot of scientific or body awareness all the way through to targeted at health professionals. So they've got a lot of good ways at explaining pain, giving you useful little tools that you can just begin to work on it yourself, especially if things like psychology or physiotherapy is a bit out of budget for you. As I said at the start, there is a lot more that I want to be talking about with pain science. There's a lot we know that can go on with the immune system, with stress, and I will address those, but I thought today we'd just start with the basic main way that chronic pain can hang around and we'll build up from there. Now, for next episode, however, what I'm wanting to do is how do you know whether to go see a physio versus a GP? It's something a lot of people would come and ask me about, my family especially. And basically, I want to run through a couple of different situations of where physio might be your best port of call or GP and some of the red flags of musculoskeletal concerns that physio keeps an eye out for that you can use to determine whether it could be worth checking out the GP before you come in. So hopefully you'll listen in for that one and I will see you next time. Bye.